Well, uh, it's great to be with you guys here in Dallas and hello to Plano and Fort Worth and my home campus of Frisco. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Connor Baxter. I serve as the campus pastor a little bit north from here at our Frisco campus. And so I am so excited to be back in the room here with you guys in Dallas. One, just to say thank you. I've got so many stories to tell you about what God is doing, but because of the way members of this body have stewarded their lives, have prayed, have given given sacrificially, God is going to work up north at our Frisco campus. I'm going to share some of those stories with you today, but what I'm more excited to share with you about is the story of God and how it changed my life. And specifically, we're picking up this week back in the Sermon on the Mount. And I've had the privilege, actually, of being over there in Israel where Jesus gave this sermon. So here's a picture of my now bride and I standing where Jesus himself gave this message. And so I love this picture because that gal I was dating at that point in time and I was well on the hunt, uh, became my bride a little bit later down the road. That Bible in my hand in that picture is the same Bible that I have today. But um, perhaps more important than all of that, the words of my Savior that he gave right there have stayed with me over the last few years. And so I'll, I'll tell you, I have the Sermon on the Mount memorized And I don't say that to impress you. We're gonna talk about some guys today that had not three chapters of the Bible, but five books of the Bible memorized that didn't get after it. So don't let that impress you. But I tell you that because as as a scripture that I have studied and I've spent time in and I've disciplined myself to memorize and I meditate on it at least monthly and review it and have been there where Jesus was when he gave this, it continues to radically call me to something and move me towards a a deeper understanding of who God is, a a deeper desire to want to follow him, and a deeper understanding why I rightfully love him. So that's why I'm excited to be with you guys this morning and share with you what God has for us on the Sermon on the Mount. You, You also need to know this message of the Sermon on the Mount was a message that got a hold of me when I really started to walk with my Savior, with Jesus. And so my life did not always look like the kind of guy you would want to stick up here to communicate something from the scripture. My life was full of sin, self-centeredness, chasing girls, parties, pleasure, uh, pursued sports to build up a name and a reputation for myself. That marked all of my life. Drugs, anything I could do to find value or worth or satisfaction, I chased all of those things. And part of the reason I did that was because I was hurt by the church. So I know some people in this room can identify with that. I I remember showing up and going through the doors of where the church would gather and feeling judged and feeling like I had nothing to offer and like everybody there was better than myself. And it just, what it did is it moved me to licentiousness. It moved me to feel like I had a license to sin. Because you know what, if these people who know these words and they don't live them out when they're not here gathered together, what's it matter if I do or don't? That was part of my understanding. The other part of my understanding was I did see some people who said what they said and they talked the talk, but they also walked the walk. And that was hard for me to look at because I was not somebody, as I just told you, that was anywhere close to the level of obedience or righteousness that I saw other people. And I just said, I'm throwing in the towel. I can't live that way. I can't be that perfect. I can't fill in the blank. And the Sermon on the Mount was written for me and it's written for you. So if you're here and you feel like the church is hypocritical, you're gonna find out you agree with Jesus when he speaks out against hypocrisy. When I read that in the text we'll be in today, 
I realized I didn't disagree with Jesus. I agreed with him. I disagreed with the false um, outward appearance of Christianity that some people take that name and it's used for hypocrisy. Jesus disagreed with that. And then I realized I didn't have to do anything to come to my savior. I didn't have to earn my righteousness. It is given to me. So that's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're gonna keep unpacking today. But I wanna just say thank you to this body, to Watermark, to you. I was a guy who showed up here a few years who did not think that the church was the place following Jesus was supposed to happen because of my experience. But this community of faith has been a living sermon in my life. And so I am grateful and I am humbled and it is an honor to be here and spend time with you this morning. So let me pray for us as we dive into the text and we'll keep rolling. Lord, we, we, we love you. Thank you for how your word is living and active. Thank you that it does not return void. Thank you that it has instructed me and taught me for years and specifically in the past weeks I pray that this morning as we spend time together that um, it would be focused on you and what you would have for us and would you use your word to move us. I pray we're not just gathering information today, but I truly pray that our lives would be transformed. We would not just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers, Lord. And there's nothing inside of ourselves that would cause us to do that. But your spirit that dwells in us, for those who've put their faith in you, you move us towards action. And so we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, so the high level, we're gonna spend a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount. We've already started to, and we've got several weeks that are coming. And the first thing I always try and do is just tell myself in one sentence, what is this passage or this message that Christ had? What is this about? And so here's, here's the one sentence of what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Okay, it's about the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom and the conduct which marks them. It's about the characteristics and the conduct of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Put in another way, it's about the heart of believers and their hands. It's about the beliefs we have and then our behaviors that are a result of our beliefs. It's about our attitude and it's about our actions. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And Jesus is communicating that to us, to folks who say, I walk with him. And so just as a reminder where we've been, we're, we're gonna get to verse 21 today and the next few verses out of that, but we've already spent time in Matthew 5. And as a recap, it starts with the Beatitudes, right? In verses three, or verses five through 12. And it, in those Beatitudes, the first three tell us the foundations of the faith, the foundations, the beliefs about those who are part of the kingdom. And in the middle, that fourth one is about the focus of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then it's gonna roll out of that and talk about the fruit in our lives that's produced as a citizen of the kingdom. That's where we spent time in verse, um, and then it follows with that, hey, if you're gonna be about this life, this blessed life, just know it is gonna be marked by fruit, but you are gonna have foes. You will be persecuted, you will be reviled, and people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account but rejoice and be glad. Your job, Christian, verse 13 and 14, is to be salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. That's what we covered last week. And then he flows out of that into verse 17 and 19 and talks about the role of the Messiah, which was not to come and abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
And that's what Jesus did for us. And all of that is working itself towards verse 20. And we're gonna read it together. Matthew 5, verse 20. This is the verse that summarizes the entire Sermon on the Mount, the sentence that I already gave you. This is what he was working towards. Everything we're gonna cover today and the rest of our time in the Sermon on the Mount comes out of verse 20. So Matthew 5, verse 20, the key verse of your Sermon on the Mount is this. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what we're gonna cover for the rest of our time are correction passages, correcting a misbelief and a misapplication and a misunderstanding of what's always been true of the people of God. And he's gonna say the Pharisees, those who have gone around telling you what's right and what's wrong and that you need to follow their way. I'm telling you, you've got to exceed their righteousness. And so the, the hearers of Jesus in this time uh, would have maybe been discouraged or they maybe would have been encouraged. If you're like me, when I first heard that part of my story, is I just go exceed the righteousness of the folks who can quote your Bible and can stand in stages and can teach it, exceed that level of righteousness. I can never exceed that. So I'm going to give up now. Jesus is going to correct that thinking. He's going to talk about where true righteousness comes. And he's going to expose the superficial righteousness of the Pharisees that is focused on external behaviors. Christ says that is superficial righteousness. That is plastic righteousness. If you're thinking that you're going to be a citizen of my kingdom because you are doing certain things I've called you to do, you're not going to be one of my citizens, if you think it is a result of what you've done. And this wasn't a message that we just find in our New Testament. This is one for today. We can look around and see other beliefs and other religions that talk about your external righteousness is the way that you get to heaven or, or become uh, one day when you die, you're gonna spend eternity with God. If your external behaviors match it, right? You hear it said, unless you're circumcised, you will not be a part of God's kingdom. Unless you believe in Jesus and are baptized, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is gonna say, no, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your righteousness is not based on your works, but what I've done for you. So what he's trying to do, the best place to go study this week, if you want to learn more on that, is read Philippians 3, where a guy came out of this religion of false uh, understanding of the Old Testament and into an understanding of what God has always done through history. Go read Philippians 3 about Paul and the way he did not put confidence in, in his flesh. And so that's what Jesus is saying to his audience you cannot put confidence in your flesh and good, and good deeds. You've got to put your confidence in the God of the universe who put on flesh to pay for what you could not do in your flesh on your own. That's what he's moving us for. So now as we dive into this week's text and the next following weeks, you've got to remember that's the framework we're working out of. God is correcting a false understanding of righteousness. All right, so the next couple of weeks are gonna be broken up. The rest of Matthew 5 is broken up into six large chunks. I'm gonna cover two of them today. But you need to know that six chunks that come out of this verse 20, and he's specifically gonna use a pattern to talk about this. So I'm gonna show you what that is. I wanna read with you first the scripture we're gonna cover first, that first chunk, and then I wanna show you the way that fits into a flow that Jesus is teaching us out of. All right, so uh, let's read together Matthew 5, verse 21 through 26. 
And he says, you have heard that it was said of the old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother is liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. And whoever says you fool is liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering a gift before the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift at the altar. And so if you're with your accuser while with him on the way to court, Come to terms with him quickly. And he's gonna go on and on and talk about your accuser while you're with him and you're going on the way to court because he's gonna hand you over to the judge and the judge is gonna give you to the guard and the guard's gonna throw you in prison and truly I say to you, you will not get out until you have paid every penny. So before we unpack that text and all that it is, let me just show you high level, the umbrella, the flow of the next six chunks. So if you look at this chart with me, What Jesus is gonna do is he's gonna give a command. So he's gonna give a command from God. He's gonna quote scripture. That's how he's gonna start every section we're gonna cover in the next few weeks. He's gonna start with a command. And then what he's gonna do is he's gonna correct understanding. He's gonna give you the correct understanding. There was a false understanding of what that command meant. Jesus is gonna correct that. And then out of that, he is gonna call us to application. He is gonna call us to something. He's not gonna just say, it's, since you understand appropriately where righteousness comes from, now you can do whatever you want at any time you want. You can keep on sinning so grace may abound. No, there is a call to action in every single one of the passages we're gonna study. So all of us, as we spend time in God's word, all of us have something to take away today. But why I wanna spend a little more time unpacking Why this could be so confusing is because you're gonna hear Jesus say after he gives a command, but I say to you. The wrong way to think about that is to think that God is correcting scripture. We know he's quoting scripture from the Old Testament and we know that in Matthew 5, 18, he's already said that scripture was not wrong. What God gave to Moses, the 10 commandments, there was no error in that. God didn't make a mistake when he gave commands and Moses did not write something down falsely on those tablets. Because that's a bad way to think about this. In verse 18, he says, not an iota or a dot will pass away the book of, of, from the law until all is accomplished. So he's already telling us the commands are not the issue. He's not saying, but I say to you to correct the command that was already there. He's correcting the false interpretation and the application of that command, which was coming forth from the Pharisees. And the reason he says, you have heard that it was said is because this was an oral tradition. This is where it got really muddy. This is why on that chart, you'll see it says command from God, but also tradition because the Pharisees who had God's law and who were the pastors of the day communicating to people who weren't reading it really on their own, they were mixing in their tradition with God's command. And so as the audience, as the hearers, and as followers and people were trying to figure out what God wanted them to do, it was really hard to figure out what God wanted you to do specifically because the Pharisees interwove their own understanding, their own ideas, their own traditions with God's word. So Jesus is correcting that. He's gonna separate and show you the actual command of God and then correct your understanding. And he's gonna correct out of verse 20 that said, it is not your external righteousness that puts you into a right relationship with me. I am after your heart. 
your internal motivations, your desires, your belief. You've got to believe in me that I am the one that gives you righteousness. You need to know you cannot earn your righteousness to me. Stop trying to earn your way to me. I have left heaven to be, get in a relationship with you. And you've got to understand that. And so there's a false idea out there that people were saved in the Old Testament differently than they were in the New. So I want to show you a few spots in your Old Testament that communicate this same idea. This story is woven throughout your entire scripture. So if you turn back to Psalm 51, 16 through 17, here's what God's word communicates to us. It says, for you will not delight in a sacrifice, David speaking to God, or I would give it. If I could earn something from you by an external work, I would do it. But you would not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Insert here the first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he just ends and says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You enter into the kingdom of God, not by external works, but through a faith and a heart that believes in God's works on your behalf. You see it again in 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says, this is a big idea. You need to know those who you put into leadership, you need to care about their heart and what they do internally, not just what they do externally. This is what 1 Samuel 16, 7 says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Over and over and over again. I'm gonna show you two more spots so you don't miss this. God has always been concerned with what is internal. He always says it starts with the heart. It's always started with the belief. If you go back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, I'm going to read to you a scripture. You've, you probably know, and if I asked you what the greatest command was, you would quote Jesus. But you need to know that that was found and rooted in what was already there in God's Old Testament in your Bible in Deuteronomy 6. And this shows up before the law. This is why this is so important. Before you could have a misidea of how to earn your way to God through keeping commandments. You need to know what the purpose of the commandments was. In Deuteronomy 6, 5 says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. That's what the, the law was there to show you. You cannot earn your way to me. It was to reveal God's holiness and reveal to us our lack thereof. And his goal in those commandments was to move your heart towards a deeper love for God. Not you working your way like climbing a staircase to him. The last place I wanna show you is Genesis 15, six. Why this again is so important because this is Abraham. This is before the law existed or was in place. And God's gonna say, you wanna know how you are righteous in my sight? You wanna know how your righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? Here it is in your Old Testament, Genesis 15, six. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. So, so today what we're gonna do now is we're gonna zoom back in this same teaching Jesus is reminding his audience of in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. So if we go back now with me to this chart and just look at how the flow of what God's teaching is and fits right into with what we looked at earlier. He starts with a 
command, a command from God. You shall not murder. That was in your Old Testament. That was part of the 10 commandments. You can read Exodus 20 and read that sixth commandment. That was God's word. The tradition that was inserted into that was, hey, righteousness, if you just don't murder, you are good. Everything below that, it was watered down. Doesn't matter what your heart is or your attitude is towards others, as long as you're not literally killing people, you are good in the sight of God. But insert the second part of what Jesus is doing. He's gonna give them a correct understanding. The way you know that is he says, but I say to you, that phrase is gonna show up six times. That's what breaks up this rest of Matthew 5 into six chunks. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool is liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus is doing right here is he's just showing you the heart of the person that would take a knife and kill somebody, which I doubt any of us in this room probably did this past week. I want you to know something. The same heart would suppress anger towards his brother over a long period of time. The same heart of the murderer that would kill somebody is the same heart of somebody who would grab some people and slander and gossip about other folks. The same heart of the murderer, which is condemnable, and you know that external work, is the same heart of the person that would stand before somebody and just insult them and call them names to their face out of anger. All of those are condemnable. Why? Your heart is not mine. That's not the heart of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Your internal motivation is wrong, and it is sin, and it is condemnable. That's what he's showing us. And then the, the, one of the best places I know in scripture that really communicates this is Matthew 15, 19. And it just says, for out of the heart, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, and slander. And that's what God is after with his people is our hearts. And he's saying out of that heart is what brings forth this thing. And what did we already study in the Sermon on the Mount earlier in Matthew 5? It says, blessed are the, the peacemakers for they are called children of God. To represent the family name, we are folks who bring forth peace, not cause division. So the call to action Jesus gives us right here in this text is simple. Reconcile. That's the call to action is be reconciled. It's not okay to not be okay with people. The application for us all is reconcile. It's not okay to not be okay with people. One of the ways uh, this was just illustrated in my life recently is out there in Frisco, I've spent some time with other guys in town who have a similar role and responsibility that I do at different churches that are, all these guys are pastors. And so I've got a little bit of a relationship with some of these guys. And so one Saturday evening, I'm sitting there and I uh, open up my phone, I got a text from one of them and I pop it open and it's a screenshot of a message on Facebook. And I opened this up and I'm looking at it and what had happened was there was a Watermark member of our campus who saw some things at another church, specifically this guy's, that he disagreed with. So his action, because he was frustrated, he had some pain in his own life from some previous church experiences. He thought he, what he saw this other church doing was wrong. He got mad that this other church would be seeking to grow attendance in the way that they were. So he thought it was his job to get on Facebook and write a post on this church's public Facebook profile. Okay, let me read you what he said and what pops up on my phone from this other pastor. 
This was a Watermark member that I'm quoting at our Frisco campus. He said, this looks fun. If you're a broken person like me, looking to focus on God's words with others, other broken people without all the hoopla, meet me at Watermark Frisco. We meet at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. and we rally around each other as a community of broken people serving a perfect God and a perfect Savior. Okay, that's not exactly the way you want to go about publicly representing your campus or inviting people to it. All right, and you could see the anger that was there. And it was clear. And so I get that text. So let me just ask you, what would you do if you're me in that moment? You got that text from the other pastor, that's your friend. It's a member of the community you go to, a member, and publicly is living out Matthew 5 and not the good part, but spewing anger publicly in front of others. Well, it was, it was simple. It was easy. I knew exactly what to do. One, because I had spent time in this text. Two, because I've studied resources we have here that just communicate what God's word would have us do. And so the, the application was simple. Reconcile. We're not going to gather together on a Sunday morning. You're not going to go to your community group. And we're not going to meet together and publicly worship and publicly come to the altar while there is now conflict between us and other brothers of Christ in this community. So what did I do? I called that member. I said, hey, um, I think I see what you were trying to do. I don't even necessarily agree with what that other church is doing, but I, the way you executed that was not God honoring. That was out of anger and it was clear. And he agreed. I said, you know, I know what we should do. What do you think we should do? He says, I, I need to get with that pastor and I need to ask for forgiveness. And I said, you're exactly right. So I called that pastor, he's my friend, we had a relationship, I scheduled a meeting, we got together with this member who posted that after he'd taken it down, and that member of our body just asked for that pastor's forgiveness. I said, man, I moved out of you, towards you in anger, in frustration, and you need to know why I did that, man. There's a story, hurt people hurt people. He was hurt in the past, or he was hurting him. That pastor extended him grace. We had a great conversation about some things we did actually disagree with, but we left there as friends, as reconciled, as strengthened, as unified. And God glorified that we would not continue to meet together as if nothing was wrong in that situation. And so I know you're probably sitting there thinking, you would never post something on Facebook. I mean, surely nobody in this room, right, would spew venom over um, a screen and post something publicly at another church's Facebook post and invite people to Watermark. I know you would never do that. But let me just ask you, how's your marriage? How was the last six or seven conversations with your spouse? Would the people at your place of work and your office identify you as a peacemaker? As somebody who shows up and everybody's glad that they're there. If there's conflict in the office, they come to your door to help reconcile it. What's the, what's the average volume level of you at your children's sporting events? And do people look at you and go, oh, that, that is a man or woman of God right there bringing peace. Or they go, man, that's somebody that's just angry and I don't even know what. Not even making sense. Right? But how are we doing, church? I know we would, it's easy to, to judge my friend who's growing and he did a great job. To think about how obvious that was that it was wrong to post something like that on Facebook. But that's, we're all in that story. But so let me just 
pause right here. If you're in the middle of conflict, there is clear application. But let me just tell you, as a church, we try to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Part of our ministry is reconciliation. One of the ways we've done all we can to help you in your battle of reconciling with others is create what we call a conflict field guide. So I printed it out. All you gotta do is go to Watermark uh, and get the community app you can download that. And on that community app, we've got all the best resources of Watermark. And when you click conflict, there's multiple resources. The first one is the conflict field guide. Let me just tell you, if there's conflict that you're gonna move towards when you leave here, I would encourage you to spend time with that. And as a reminder, if you're a member here, we expect you to be fluent in that. We expect the community groups here to already have studied the six-week Um, study of resolve, a biblical guide to conflict resolution. We see conflict as an opportunity to glorify God. And that's part of what we do. This is so important because we cannot be right with God if we're not right with one another. If you look at 1 John 2, 9 through 10, it says this. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him, there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because he is blind. Look, God died to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And he's saying, if you wanna have fellowship with me, the God of light and live in brokenness and hate and in anger, I don't care if you suppress it or if you're slandering or if you're spewing it, You are not living in the light. You are not being representations of my kingdom. You are not acting like a citizen of my kingdom ought to act. And God's just saying, your horizontal relationships with one another affects our vertical relationship. You are not right with me if you are not right with each other. So this is is part of what... um, could be so difficult. And I've been in some hard situations in the last couple of weeks even. And it gets really harder when you hear somebody communicate that. You read Jesus' text and you go, but you don't understand the pain that I've gone through. You don't know the wrong that others have caused me and why I'm angry. If you only knew that my dad was never present and never around, you'd be angry too. If you, maybe my dad was around, but when he was around, he was a source of violence and conflict and abuse. If you understood my context, you wouldn't be telling me not to be angry about that. If you knew the things my spouse or my ex-spouse did to me, you would not tell me to pursue reconciliation. If you only knew, if you knew the pain my past church caused me, you would not call me into faithful obedience and membership and connectedness with the body because I have been hurt. And this is where I would just encourage you is 2 Corinthians 5, 18. He says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20 says, we are ambassadors. But we already studied the Sermon on the Mount, we are peacemakers. That's what makes us a part of God's family. We don't spew out venom. We don't respond in anger because our God who put on flesh and came and died and hung on a cross when he was hanging on the cross, wrongfully accused. He didn't retaliate. He didn't respond in anger. He prayed for those who persecuted him. I know the only power you have in the midst of the wrong and the real pain that's there 
to pursue reconciliation is a deeper trust in God's story of grace and gospel. But the gospel is powerful enough to give us the confidence to move towards reconciliation, peace, and hope in the middle of the hardest times. And so this is what starts to hurt a church when, when the members of that church don't move towards one another in reconciliation. That hurts a church. But let me tell you what kills a church. It's when those of us who maybe not currently are in a level of conflict, but those around us are, we don't move towards them in love and say, you've got to go reconcile. That kills a church. We know we're not gonna get it right and we're gonna get it wrong and we're gonna hurt each other and make each other mad and have to work through conflict. That's gonna hurt us when we do that, but it's gonna kill us if we never help each other move towards that reconciliation. And that's the job. That's not the job of, of a pastor or somebody with a watermark email. That's the job of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So we practice that here at our church. Let me just remind us of a, of a house rule we have here, of a principle we live by. It's called the 24-hour rule. So just to remind you, this is when, uh, maybe this has happened in your community group and somebody in your community group is coming to you talking about somebody else in your community group, something they did wrong. But ultimately what they're doing is defiling this person, slandering, gossip. And you listen to that, we're saying that is a foul, time out. That's not what God would have you do. Although you're not in that conflict, you're called to help resolve that conflict. You are part of the salt that God put in that situation to preserve from decay. And when you stand by and listen to that, you're part of the decay now that's going on and you're called to be salt of the earth to preserve it. So we insert in the 24-hour rule. When somebody comes to you with that, you just respond to them, hey, I, I know the person you just talked about would wanna know that. I know they wanna follow Jesus. I know they're not gonna do it perfectly. And they would be, helped if you would tell them what you just told me. Well, uh, no, 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 I was, just, I was just kidding. Or I just wanted to get your counsel on what scripture I should use to help me in this situation. No, no, you just told me that. So I'm gonna love you enough. I'm gonna give you 24 hours to go tell them what you just told me and be kind and be gracious and own your 2% and take the log out of your own eye. But you need to move forward to them and show them the speck in theirs. And that's what God would have you do. And by the way, in 24 hours, I'm gonna ask you if you've done that. I'm gonna follow up with that person. And if you haven't, I'm gonna go get them and bring them to you. We live by that here. That's part of how we operate in the 24-hour rule in our communities, in our larger, broader family of faith. We live that way. We are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And so for some of us, the application that Jesus gave us, which was to reconcile, would cause us, maybe the most obedient thing for you to do is not show back up next week or come to this altar and give your sacrifice. It'd go through this religious motion. The most faithful thing maybe for you next week is you need to take a road trip out of town to reconcile with family members you haven't talked to in a long time. Some of you may need to pull out your phones and text somebody and set up a time for you to get with them so you can ask their forgiveness and move towards them in reconciliation. Some of us need to grab our spouse's hand and squeeze it and just say, after this, I, I need to talk to you, right? There's something for us to identify here and to move forward with that application. I wanna show you guys part of being out in Frisco and why I'm excited to be here, like I told you, was to share more of what God's doing up there. So we had the chance to pull off Summit 
this semester in Frisco for the first time. So this is part of what is so amazing that we've got a campus up north. A year ago, when we've hosted Summit, we had to go to Plano or Dallas. We only had 25 guys from Frisco go to Summit. This year, we pulled off Summit up in Frisco, and we had over 100 guys. So here's a picture Uh, We don't have our own facility yet, so we met at a volleyball court, but it was awesome. There was over 100 guys there. And so we had so much, yeah, it's clap. And so look, we started a campus because we believed we'd be more effective at making and being disciples. We could invite people to come and see, and that's happening. God's using that. But while we're at this um, men's Bible study, a man was there from another church. He's a member of another church. He's coming to our Bible study. It's the first time he's ever experienced any level of community. And within that, after studying God's word and feeling the conviction to move towards action, he draws me and another guy aside. He says, hey, I I need to tell you guys something. I slept with somebody this week that's not my wife. I am in the middle of an active affair. Okay, so let me just pause. Church, what would you do, pastor, in that moment. But let me tell you what my initial response was when he told me that. I wanted to grab him and shake him and say, what do you mean you're in the act of affair? How could you betray your vows, betray your wife, the one you are one with? How could you do anything to compromise that? What's wrong with you? That was what I desired to respond with. That was the frustration. I mean, if you're anything like me, that that may have been yours too, but let me just tell you, what we're rolling into, Jesus has something to say to us about that. In this text, which was um, more at the tip of my tongue and in my heart than it usually is because of the ways I've been studying and preparing, just reminded me of Jesus's words here now in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. He says, hey, I, I, I do, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one member than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one member than your whole body be thrown into hell. And uh, I was, remem- it was reminded of that, that chart and I was reminded there's a command from God, there's a correct understanding that my righteousness is uh, not external and that the way I've maybe been obedient to not committing external adultery, I know there's adultery of my heart that's taken place over the years. And so I went back to this chart and I just reminded myself, man, God does give me this command to not commit adultery. But he's gonna say, but I say to you, he's gonna correct the misunderstanding, the superficial righteousness of the Pharisees was, as long as you're not sleeping around, you're good. Everything else, fair game. But the correct understanding and then the call to action Jesus is gonna give is remove. Remove that access, remove whatever it is that is allowing you to walk in that. And so clearly Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here. He doesn't literally mean gouge out your eye and tear out and cut off your hand and throw it away. That's not literally what he means, but this may literally be your application. You need to get rid of the porn factory you call your iPhone, which I know 85% of us in this room have. You may need to cancel your internet subscription if that's what's allowing you to continue to walk in adultery. 
and sexual immorality. You, you may need to stop getting on Instagram or just delete Instagram altogether. You need to stop getting on the apps you're getting on or dating places. You need to stop doing all of that if that's what is giving you access towards something. And uh, this is a big deal. I mean, this, when Jesus is speaking this way, it's like he's waving his arms and just saying, pay attention to what I'm about to say. This really matters. You need to grasp what I'm telling you, this is a big deal and we've watched it be a big deal. We know that over 50% of marriages that end in divorce have in them at least one of the members addicted to pornography. So pornography is a big deal. We know it's not just a man's thing. We know sometimes the church has taught it that way. One in every three women struggle with active addiction to pornography. And so this has rippled through the church and it's affected marriages and it's destroyed peace and reconciliation. And so Jesus says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, take this thing seriously. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so the scripture that runs to my mind is Ephesians 5, 3, which talks about, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as it is improper for the saints. Part of the way I've cut off my hand in the past is when I was in college and pursuing um, purity and a faith and a devotion, I just decided an iPhone was not helpful for me. So I got a flip phone and it drove the girl I was dating who's in that picture, who's now my bride. It drove her crazy when we were dating. But let me tell you something, it blessed my now wife. And so there's a story of a guy who's a young businessman around Dallas and he was um, getting all the things he thought he wanted and his business was blowing up and he had huge success. So he thought, I need to make sure everybody else knows the success I have. So he bought himself a Bugatti, right? He buys a Bugatti and he goes ripping out of the car dealership and he's driving down to work. He wants to show all of his friends his Bugatti, which really just showed everybody else his value. But on his way there, whoop, whoop, the police sirens go off. He gets pulled over. He's frustrated now. He's thinking about all that stuff. He's, he's kind of out of his mind a little bit, just frustrated. He opens his door and boom, a truck just sideswipes his Bugatti, totals the whole thing, takes off the door. And so he's just going crazy and he's all upset that his brand new Bugatti is all ruined. And so he's losing his mind and the police officer runs up to him that pulled him off. He goes, sir, calm down, calm down, calm down. He's like, no, I can't calm down. My Bugatti's ruined, it's totaled. I'm never gonna get it back. And the, and the police officer goes, what's wrong with you? Are you, you materialistic? You're uninformed? Look down at your arm. You're missing your arm from the elbow down. And the guy looks at his arm. My Rolex, my Rolex. And he's all frustrated. And I, I love that story, but the imagery there is that I'm talking about the radical idea of getting rid of your iPhone. Jesus says, cut off your hand. And I know, I know the Rolex of our iPhone helps us stay connected and more efficient in work and send emails. And you're never the guy that causes those group texts to go green. I, I get all of that. But Jesus is saying, take this seriously. Get rid of this. And so I've taken steps like this in the past. The series just ended of Game of Thrones. I've, I've never watched an episode of Game of Thrones. And don't, don't be surprised by that. But it just, I know my heart can't handle it. And so I know this text is telling me to get rid of those things. And even when I've done that, I've taken extreme measures in my life to get rid of those things. I've got thick accountability in this area. But Jesus is really talking to me here. 
Because when I leave Dallas and I get on the toll road and I go north and go towards Frisco by myself in my car, usually a couple times a week, there's a billboard at a specific place off the toll road with a specific image that every time I drive north, I wanna look at. And none of you would know if I do or don't. And, and Jesus is talking to me here. And he's saying, Connor, I want your heart. You know, I, the, the basketball game was on last night and I caught the last quarter of it and there was a commercial there. And nobody else was with me. My wife was on a phone call in the other room and I could have looked at that in multiple different ways and none of you would have known. But Jesus is just saying, I want your heart. And I was reminded, uh, there's a, there a phrase that came out of our baptism week last week that really encouraged me. So let me just show you a picture of last week at Frisco. We had our baptism Sunday. We baptized 13 people after being out in Frisco for seven months, which was amazing. But my favorite line, here's a picture so you can kind of see what the atmosphere was like up in Frisco. My favorite line was, I used to trade short-term pleasure for long-term pain. This teaching of Jesus to move towards reconciliation that may be painful for a moment or, or remove access that may be painful for a moment is for long-term pleasure and peace and the blessed life of being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm reminded, God's commands towards me are not out of just he wants to oppress me and see if I'll be obedient. It's out of the same love that hung on the cross. He gave us his commands to walk in them. And so that's why I flee. To quote a guy who'd stood on more stages than me and said things more eloquently, Spurgeon said, I can't trifle with evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he died to save me from it? And that's what I feel like. I can't trifle with this sin that killed my best friend, my Lord, my Savior, who gives me his righteousness. So, so I know for some of us in the room, there are folks in an active affair. The call of application is repent. To remove that relationship, bring that into the light, bring others there. There's others that I'm sure are struggling with pornography. The, the call to action is repent, remove access, bring others into that situation. There's others of us that may have no external sign of impurity or adultery, but you've got billboards in your life and commercials and you need to repent. And some of us now are tempted like the Pharisee because we don't have maybe those first three categories to think we're doing better than others and that we are more holy than thou. And we're tempted to think our righteousness now is on obedience to what God's called us to and we need to repent. But what a great message that we have a gospel and a God that can save the murderer and the adulterer because of his finished work on the cross. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness and your goodness and the way you've reconciled us to you. Thank you for the way you expose sin in our heart. Even after we know you and we can proclaim the gospel because we believe the gospel, we still sin against you. We are wicked and broken, but you are good and you are holy and you are loving and you're slow to anger and your mercies are new every morning. So Lord, we praise you and worship you. And when we get it wrong, we talk about getting it wrong and we boast in our weakness so we can 
communicate the strength of our Savior, that although we are, are all murderers and adulterers, there is a God and a message and a gospel of good news that our righteousness can't exceed that of the Pharisees because it's not based on what we do, it's what you've done for us. So lead us, Lord, into however you would apply this text to our lives. We love you. In your name we pray, amen.